there's more to this life than I thought. And James inspires me. The things he says have encouraged me. It's like there's a walk, there's a path, and it's leading to something more real than I've ever known before, and it's exciting. I get around James and I hear things that help me in my life, my work. This work he talks about has become my work. I am excited about the possibility that other people could be affected, other people could be inspired to work on themselves, to grow, to, to realize there's more to this life. Remember Tolkien's books, The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring? You remember the character in those books, Gollum, started off in The Hobbit. He was born a hobbit. His name was Smeagol. But then he was transformed into basically a cave-dwelling liar by his precious. Do you remember? My precious. He would hiss that, my precious. And, of course, his precious was the one ring that he'd found. Actually, he didn't find it, but Deagle found it. And then he strangled Deagle to get the ring. And as soon as he had the ring, he, he started being a liar. He told people that his grandmother had given it to him and so on and so forth. And anyway, the longer he had the ring, he finally went and lived under the Misty Mountains in a cave in the dark and ate cave fish. And that was it. And he had it for a long time. I don't remember how many years, but a long time. It kind of reminded me of us. We were born awake. You know, and hobbits were, you know, they were, of all the beings in his fantasy, they were really the heroes. They were small and they ate a lot, which, of course, we would like. You know, they had like maybe eight meals a day or maybe more, I don't know. So they're almost Americans. And they were kind of round, rotund. So, like I said, they're almost Americans, except they were shorter than most Americans. Unless, of course, you're talking about American children. Anyway, I do digress. They're kind of the heroes of the whole thing. The whole set of books, I guess. Legendarium, I think they call it. And so we're born awake. And then gradually we create a dark side. But we do it, instead of going and getting the one ring, we do it by developing pictures of ourselves as being valuable. And this is something that we need to look at. Each of us individually need to look at. We need to look at the value that we place on ourselves. Because proportionate to the value that we place on ourselves is our darkness. The more we value ourselves, the more in darkness we are. The more we live under the misty mountains, the more we live in caves, the more we dwell in darkness. Over the years, his eyes became accustomed to the darkness. And so his eyes would kind of glow with a light of their own. And we're that way too. We become accustomed to the darkness that we live in, and we don't think it's darkness. We call darkness light. And then we call light darkness. We get all confused in much the same way that Gollum did. Value is the regard that is held to deserve importance or preciousness of something. So you can see where this my precious came from. I started thinking about how we value ourselves and what that cost us. Because everything we do costs us something. Nothing is free. If you breathe, it costs you to breathe. If you circulate blood, it costs you to circulate blood. If you grow hair, it costs you to grow hair. Everything about being alive costs something. The values that cause untold misery to ourselves and others are those that lead us to internally consider. We don't usually hook up values with internal consideration, but that's kind of a missing link for us. The reason we internally consider is because of our values. What are they? When we regard ourselves as precious, we open ourselves to mounting misery. When I say mounting misery, I mean it's misery with interest. 
That's the great thing about our misery and internal consideration. It's interest. We're collecting interest on it all the time. You can be doing something else, but you're still collecting interest. And we love that. We love collecting interest because we feel like we're getting something for nothing, even if it's misery. Now think about your misery and think about how much you like to ascribe it to something other than yourself and your own values. Think about how much you like to ascribe your misery to other people. Think about how much you'd like to ascribe other people's misery to other people. Think about how much you'd like to ascribe the world's misery to other people. If you've little or no picture of yourself as being valuable, you won't be easily upset. But the people who consider themselves valuable are very easily upset, very easily slighted, very easily annoyed, very easily irritated, very easily offended. If you've ever felt insulted, slighted, underappreciated, or diminished by others, it's because they have not esteemed you at your proper value. When we say it like that, it doesn't sound very pretty, which is why we're saying it like that. Because we have to take the shine off of this. We have to take this shine off of self-pride. In the world, people will try and tell you that you need to have pride in your work, pride in yourself, self-worth. And all that really means to us is valuation. We need to value ourselves more. We need to be worth more. That is counterproductive when it comes to self-development. If you wish to develop spiritually, psychologically, if you wish to develop beyond the animal, then your valuation of yourself must come from a different place than outside of you. It can't come through the five senses. It has to come internally. Your valuation has to be set internally, not externally. If we set our valuation externally, you can see the first thing we'll do is compare ourselves with other people. So someone is going to be more valuable and someone is going to be less valuable. Already that's a problem because now that we value ourselves above someone or below someone, we're going to be offended. We're going to be slighted. We're going to be hurt. We're going to be bothered or insulted or underappreciated or diminished or exalted and then slammed down because what goes up must come down. I think as the Bible says, pride goes before a fall. My experience is that pride goes before a fall. And your experience probably is that too, if you think about it, that pride goes before a fall. As soon as you start to feel like, then you look around after you fall to see if anybody saw you. Because it was your pride that was hurt. It was your pride that was damaged. It was your valuation of yourself. The more we value ourselves, the more others will feel like they're walking on eggshells around us. The more others feel like, mm, don't say that to him, don't say that to her, don't say that around them. Because people who value themselves a great deal tend to think that they should have everything that they want, that everything should go the way they say it should go, that everything should go the way they think it should go. If this is fitting you, good. If it's not, dig deeper, because it should. <laughs> There's a shoe for you. There's a Cinderella shoe for you, and when it gets on your foot, it'll be a perfect fit. But you have to hold your real foot out there. You can't lie about it and pretend like the stepsisters who, you know, here's this little dinky shoe and they got these big old ski feet and they're trying to jam them into the shoe because they want to be the princess. It won't work. But there is a shoe that fits you. There is a valuation that you have of yourself that you probably are not aware of. But it's something that you need to start to try on so that you can become aware of it. Because until you become aware of it, you're going to be subject to it. You're going to be slighted. You're going to be insulted. You're going to be underappreciated. You're going to be diminished. And you're going to be offended by other people. You're going to feel like other people don't treat you right. And so the more of a tyrant we become, because people then start walking on eggshells around us. So we see the great power in that. We have this magic bubble around us. 
and it's an invisible shield. Well, it's invisible to us, but it's certainly visible to them. And they won't come too close because we are tyrants, because we will make them pay the price, because we value ourselves and we set the value of ourselves pretty highly. And it's always a value that we have set. That's the thing. It's never a value someone else has set for us. We like to say, oh, but that's the way I was raised. Well, that may be the way you were raised, but now the value you've set on yourself is all yours. It's all yours. You own it. You set it. You take it out and polish it and then put it back up on the mantle. So it's yours. It's your little crown that you're wearing. It's you shining your shoes so that you can see your face in them. So we become my precious. We don't need the one ring. This valuation of ourselves becomes my precious. The higher our estimate of ourselves, the easier to feel others don't show proper respect for us. When people don't show proper respect for us, we will internally consider the higher the valuation we have on ourselves, the more easily we will internally consider. Maurice Nicole wrote, A person may even be so preoccupied with the question of others treating him rightly and with suspicions about whether others are laughing at him that his whole life may be said to be involved in internal considering. Every time I think about someone with suspicions about whether others are laughing at him, I think of a certain person. And that time we were at a meeting, the whole group of us, all the men, we were at a meeting in Vista at this guy's house and they had a big old punch bowl and the whole thing, cookies and like that. And I guess they gave a talk or something. And then afterwards there was this break and people kind of went and got some punch and cookies and stood around and talked. And this guy who was part of our group was over on the other side of the room and he was talking to someone else who was not part of our group, but someone who was at the meeting. The rest of the guys, we were all hanging around the punch bowl. We were laughing and eating cookies or whatever we were doing and drinking punch. I don't know what we were doing. Whatever we were doing, we were telling jokes or something. And we were having just a grand time, really yucking it up. Well, I never even noticed that the other guy who was on the other side of the room talking to somebody else was suspicious. I mean, it never occurred to me until we all got out in his car because he had driven and he had this big old vehicle and he'd driven. So we all piled in the car and driving along and and somehow, I guess I must have said something to him because that's usually my job because he was all negative and contracted. And I said, well, what's up with you? You know, how come you got your panties in a wad? You know, then he started going on and on about how people were laughing him to scorn. You guys remember this? And we just started laughing, of course, because it was like, we said, well, when would we laugh at you to scorn? When you were all around the table over there, you were all laughing me to scorn. And we were absolutely, simply flabbergasted by the whole scene. It was like, we weren't even thinking of you. <laughs> we, you know, it was like, there was nothing to say. We, nothing we could say would appease him. He was just absolutely offended, insulted. He was diminished in his own eyes, and he had diminished himself in the eyes of everyone there. And it was like, wow. You know, it was sad, but we couldn't stop laughing because it was so absurd. When I read that a person may even be so preoccupied with the question of others treating him rightly and with suspicions about whether others are laughing at him, that his whole life may be said to be involved in internal considering. When I read that, that's instantly what popped in my head. I remembered that. I thought, well, that is the most graphic example, the most outlandish graphic example that I have ever come across. This guy was so unabashed about this that he came right out and told all of us that that's what we were doing. And even when we all insisted that we weren't, he still would cling to that impression that he was feeding. And I realized that it wasn't an impression, that it was an account. 
that it was internal consideration, that he had gone to internal consideration, and now he was collecting interest. So everything that we said was just more interest on the account, on the internal consideration account. The ways that are precious find to be offended seem endless. So we have the one, you're laughing me to scorn. And then for years, we remember, we kind of made a joke of it. We'd get around him and we'd start to laugh. And we'd say, hey, we're laughing you to scorn. Try and get him to lighten up a little bit. Or we'd say, oh, now you're laughing. If he would laugh, we'd go, now you're laughing me to scorn. And of course, it needled him. I don't think he really ever got it. But, but we sure got a lot of ho-hos out of it, didn't we? Like there's some people who even use their suffering to increase self-worth. Now, a lot of people will talk about older people, people who retire and start to have health problems, their health goes down, and then they seem to talk endlessly about their operations, about the medications that they're taking, about how they feel today, what it's like to get up in the morning, whether they had a bowel movement this year or not, you know, things like that. Their whole worth, their whole self-worth then becomes wrapped up in their suffering. I knew a fellow, older fellow in Florida, he and his wife, they're both gone now. He had open heart surgery at one point. And I remember visiting with them once. Uh, I was living here in California, and I went back there to visit. I think I was going back there to give a talk. That's what it was. And, and they, I was staying at their house. They were putting me up. And he had had the surgery between the time that I left Florida and the time that I went back to give this talk, which was a number of years. And he had this scar on his chest. And he wanted to tell me all about this surgery. And so I'm staying in the guy's house. Gee, I don't, I don't really want to hear about your scar and your surgery. But I listened. And the more I listened, the more he got into it. Until he finally had his shirt unbuttoned. And he's showing me. They cut me open from here to here. They spread my ribs like a chicken. And they, he's describing all of these things. Now, I know he was asleep for this, wasn't he? I mean, they put you to sleep for this. I mean, I know you're not, you're not, <laughs> you can't possibly be awake for that anyway. And then they, and he's going on and on. And, and then he starts to actually say this. Oh, how I suffered. Oh, and this, in this voice. Oh, how I suffered. And his wife, Lois, she didn't even care, you know, and he's going on and on. And I'm thinking like, and I mean, you know, and he's got this wailing voice. And this is years after the surgery, but he's still reliving this and collecting the interest off of this. And he's got this in, all this internal account and he's got this self-worth because he had open heart surgery and he lived and it was worse than anything else anybody else ever had. And then he could show me scars on his legs where they took veins out and rerouted things and all this other stuff. And it's like, wow. And all he could talk about was how he suffered. So if I didn't have this experience, I wouldn't think it was possible that someone could be that into it. But you all know people who are, or you've known people who were. It's their worth. Their valuation is set on their suffering. Some people will do it about their age. Oh, I'm 93 this month. And, you know, so somehow that gives them, I stayed alive this long, so I'm valuable, you know, because I have survived life. The funny thing about uh, this guy down in Florida is he never really had enough suffering. And he relished talking about all of his sufferings. And he relished every opportunity to add another operation. It was like notches on a gun handle. He would get to add another notch. He was going to have to have this surgery now and that surgery next. He was really suffering and not looking forward to it with great glee. Talk about mixed emotions. I was like, well, I don't know whether to congratulate this guy or feel sorry for him. You know, congratulations on another successful surgery. Pretty soon you will have had every surgery known to man. We've all known people who love telling surgery stories. And then the funny thing is you've known people who feel offended if others talk of their own sufferings. 
And then when we're talking about our sufferings and somebody else comes in and says, oh, yeah, well, that's nothing. One time we get offended. <laughs> Have you noticed that? It's like, this person is so selfish. I'm talking now. Why, why are you interrupting? I'm talking now. Hey, I'm talking here. Why do you always interrupt me? My surgery, I, or have you ever heard yourself say my accident? Well, my accident or my surgery is a funny thing. I don't call an accident if I have an accident. I don't call it my accident. I call it an accident, and I realize that it's not really an accident. It's really the settling of some karmic debt. That's how I look at accidents in my own life. In your life, I don't bother. If you want to have accidents, that's your business. I'm not even going to talk to you about them. You come and talk to me about them. If I get a chance, I will introduce the idea of settling karmic debts. I will introduce the idea of your life attracts your accidents. Your consciousness attracts your accidents. Your being attracts your accidents. So the accidents you have are attracted to you by your being. Connie and I were talking about this on the way over. Something I guess you guys discussed yesterday about dancing with someone who stepped on her toe. And someone had mentioned, well, well you have to be responsible for that because you attracted that. You know, your being attracts your life. And, of course, our being does attract our life. But we're not supposed to be telling other people, you have to be responsible for that. Your being attracts your life. We're supposed to be telling ourselves that. We're supposed to be saying, when that happens to me, I try and look at it like, well, I did this. Whether I'm responsible for it or not, I don't know. But I know that I did this. I know that somehow my being attracted this. To feel responsible is a different thing. I think this throws people off when they say, well, you need to be responsible for that. No, you don't. You don't need to be responsible for it. You have it anyway, whether you're responsible for it or not, whether you accept responsibility for it or not. You still have it. So you don't need to be responsible. You don't have to be responsible. It's a choice. You can accept it or not accept it. That's your business. That's other people's business. Leave them. Have their business. Let them attend to their own business, and you attend to your business. I think that's always the best way to do it. So if someone comes to me and they start talking about an accident, if I feel like they're receptive, if I feel like they're open, if I feel like they really want a different perspective, I may say, well, we don't know how we do it, but our being somehow attracts these things, and we don't know how and we don't know why. But if we can get to the place where we're willing to accept that, it frees us in some way. It starts to give us a certain freedom from being a victim. It starts to just put a little bit of space. It opens up a little bit of space for us, just the willingness. But if someone else is trying to make you do that, if they're trying to make you feel responsible, if they're trying to make you accept that, that has a tendency to close down the space. That has a tendency to contract the space. It goes just the opposite direction. So then I would have to ask myself if I have done that, if I have said, well, you need to be responsible for that or tried to make someone aware. If I have done that, I have to ask myself, well, what do I have against this person? Why would I want to shut them down and contract them? Why would I want to slap them across the face? Because that's really what we're doing. We're really insulting them, slapping them across the face and saying, you may be a self-developing organism, but you're not doing it well and you need my help. So let me give you a hand. If you look at it that way, you'll give a lot less advice. Even when you're asked for it, you'll give a lot less advice. Because let's face it, 90% of the time when people ask for your advice, they don't really want it. They're being polite or they're looking for someone to blame. So why don't you just take a pass on that? Use a little wisdom. Just take a pass on that and work on yourself. If we're self-developing organisms, then develop yourself. Don't waste your energy developing some other self that you can't ever possibly develop. Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay. So I ask myself, what is it, what kind of an account do I have against this person that I am now volunteering information for them, volunteering things for them? 
you know, like, well, you should do this and you should do that. Well, you have to be this way and you have to be that way. What kind of an account do I have with this person? Where am I keeping an account? Where have I been insulted or slighted or not valued properly to make this internal account? Because I've made an internal account if I'm doing this with another person. It can be hard to remember that everyone suffers here in the pain factory. We get so wrapped up in our own suffering, it's hard for us to understand and remember other people suffer here. Everyone suffers here. Everyone. Your suffering does not make you special. Your suffering does not add to your worth. Your suffering is not something to be valued. Everyone suffers. It's a free gift of the pain factory. It's part of the deal. It's the atmosphere. It's the air we breathe. It's the temperature. It's just the way it is here. Everyone, everyone, everyone suffers. But you don't believe that. You don't believe that Bill Gates suffers. You don't believe that Obama suffers. You don't believe that Warren Buffett suffers. But they do. They all suffer. And you say, well, if I had his money, I wouldn't mind his suffering. Maybe that would be true. But if you mind your own suffering, my guess is you'd mind his, no matter how much money you had, no matter what anything you had. Because your external condition, your external circumstances don't have anything to do with your internal attitude towards suffering. All that does is give you something to suffer about. The external things just gives you something to suffer about. It gives your attitude something to work on. If your attitude towards suffering is, hey, it happens. I'm balancing a karmic debt. I'm paying up. I'm getting this out of my system. I'm getting this off the chart. I'm erasing the board. I'm erasing this mark from the blackboard. If you're looking at it that way, I think that's a positive attitude towards suffering. I think that's an attitude that needs to be cultivated. I think if you can remember this, if you can become conscious of this enough to remember this, then when suffering comes your way, which will be today, suffering will come your way today. I can promise you this. Now, maybe you woke up this morning and you were already, some of us suffer when we wake up in the morning. You wake up in the morning and go, oh man, I think I overdid it yesterday. And so you suffer. Okay, well, what have I learned from this? Well, I've learned that when I overdo it, this is what happens. Of course, there's some of us who ever did it for so many years, for so long, that we wake up every day. And there's no thing to look at yesterday or the day before that brought us this suffering today. We can look back 20 years or 30 years and say, well, that's about this. You know, you have a scar and you look back and you go, yeah, I remember that. Or you have a broken bone. You broke a bone and the weather gets funky and it just gets a little achy or whatever. You know, so we have it. And it's like, and that's it. So will it last forever? No. How do I know that? Well, because you aren't going to last forever. You're going to get rid of this body. And I don't know, maybe you'll get a new body. I don't know. You know, a lot of people like to say, well, you get a new body. Well, I'm not so sure I want a new body. Thank you very much. If I have a lot of stuff to learn, it's like a new school book. I have a lot of stuff to learn. Okay. And I'll take the new school book. And school books can be expensive. You know, textbooks can really be expensive. So getting a new body is kind of like getting a new textbook, in my opinion. And if you've still got stuff to learn, then let's hope you get a new textbook. And especially if that's the only way you can learn it. The more requirements we have, the more selfish others will appear to us as they reflect our own selfishness back to us. This is another thing. We don't usually think that the more requirements we have, the more selfish other people seem to be. But that's exactly what it is. The more requirements we have, then it seems like everybody's so selfish. Why is that? Well, they're not meeting our requirements. Well, why is that? They don't value us. They don't esteem us properly or else they would meet our requirements. And they do it now in a hurry and with a smile on their face, gratefully. They would serve us. They would worship us. If they really knew who we really were, these people could never treat us like that. They just don't see. 
now. Are you starting to get the idea? <laughs> where do you start making accounts? Find that point. Find the point where you start making accounts. I will tell you this. It's where we feel we're undervalued. Now, I don't particularly think that I value myself very highly, but it's amazing to me how easily I feel undervalued. How can I feel undervalued if I don't value myself highly? See, that doesn't make sense. So clearly then, I must be valuing myself because I could not feel undervalued if I wasn't valuing myself. Well, there's a certain bit of respect and dignity that every human being deserves. Yes, that's valuation, and that's me valuing myself and using every human being to value myself. So now I'm willing to lift all of them up a little bit so that I can lift myself up a little bit higher. Isn't that really the truth? So I get to be my own precious. So here we are dwelling in our darkness because we don't see how we value ourselves. Oh, my precious. Yes, my precious. Oh, precious. We're going to... Oh, precious. They're bad. They don't see how wonderful we are. Oh, my precious. They don't value us properly, my precious. They don't know who we are, my precious. And that's the way we are. But we don't see it. But we need to see it. The waitress doesn't fill our coffee cup or our water glass. And we feel a little undervalued. It's like, well, no tip for her, right? They don't come fast enough, or they seem to be paying a lot more attention. Oh, I get it. So they wait on their friends first over there at that table, and we just get whatever we get, right? Yeah, yeah. So I see how it is. No tip for her. We're, um, we're left on hold on the phone, and we get so indignant that we finally just hang up and call back. And then we have to tell them that someone left us on hold. Yeah, that's overvaluation. If you're getting negative about it, and you are getting negative, you feel like you got to call them back and tell them somebody left you on hold. You get, that's negative, people. That's contracted. If you're hanging up the phone in a huff, even if it's a little tiny huff, do you see that it's overvaluation of your precious? <laughs> I know. No, no, of course you don't. No. I have time to be hanging on hold. <laughs> right, because your time is too valuable. <laughs> so, <laughs> whatever. You know, this is your thing. You, you, guys, you guys work this out yourselves. This is not my thing to work out. Our time is valuable because we value ourselves so much. I wouldn't have said that except I do have it written down right here, and you can come and look at it. <laughs> I didn't just make that up. I mean, that really is written down here. Our time is valuable because we value ourselves so much. Maurice Nicole wrote, Perhaps you hear what someone said of you. That is nearly always unpleasant. Uh, you know, I do love the British. Not everything about the British, but that's one of the things about the British. Their sense of unpleasant. You know, now it's probably not so much today, but he was alive back in the 50s, but uh, probably not in the 60s. And so it was a long time ago, and he came from a different generation, a different kind of British person. He was a doctor and successful, very successful doctor. And uh, he'd studied with Carl Jung, uh, Gurji, Fuspensky. So he was somebody, and he, ha- he was well-educated. But he, uh, you know, he just had that old, kind of old-school British reserve that we make fun of them about, you know, the stiff upper lip and that. But, but he, had a, he still had a sense of humor, and a sense of humor derived from his ability to see his own faults, which is the best sense of humor you can have. The best sense of humor that you can have is the kind where you see your own faults and you simply take them lightly. And so therefore you take everyone else's lightly, but not disrespectfully. You understand that they may not be able to take their own faults lightly. So you take your own faults lightly. You take the crappy end of the stick so that they can have the clean end. That's what this work is about. 
It's about goodness, not about truth. It's truth that leads to goodness. And truth that doesn't lead to goodness, you may as well put it down. Because if it leads to anything besides goodness, you don't need it. Not now. You can wait until later when you can see how it will lead to goodness. Then pick up that truth. Then start to handle that truth. But don't handle truth that doesn't lead to goodness. Don't bother with it. If you can't see how it leads to goodness, don't bother with it. If you can see how it leads to making somebody wrong, to pointing out their mistakes, to helping them, if you can see how truth does that, don't handle that truth. Just leave that truth alone. That'll be fine. It'll, it, truth is eternal. It'll still be there when you grow up and your hands are big enough to handle it. You're big enough to pick it up. You have the dexterity, you have the coordination, you have the wisdom, you have the strength to be able to handle that particular truth without poking someone in the eye. Goodness. Let goodness be your rule. Always let goodness be your rule. Always decide for love. I don't think you can make a mistake that way. If you do make a mistake that way, I believe that the work will cover you. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know. But that's the way I operate, I try to operate in my life, I think is a good idea. I don't know if it's that sound, but I think it's a good idea. But you try it and see if you can verify it. See if you aren't protected. See if you aren't somehow comforted by something beyond you. See if somehow higher centers don't communicate with you in some way. Just try it. If it doesn't work, then put it aside. Don't throw it out. Just put it aside. Maybe it'll work next year. Look at how many things we thought were working last year, and this year we say, oh, it wasn't really working last year at all, but it is working this year. Small incidents upset us easily, forming short accounts, which eventually become a habit. A small incident. The waitress doesn't fill our water glass or fill our coffee cup. It's a small incident. It's not a big deal. But if we get in the habit of expecting that, then we're stuck with it, and those habits then collect and form bigger, nastier habits. Oh, uh, here's one I dearly love. Why do they always want to be in my lane? <laughs> so, obviously, someone else dearly loves this one, too. What is it? What is it? It's like, uh, I just attract these people to pull over in front of me and go, slow what? Why do they want to be in my lane? They were fine in their own lane. Now they're in my lane. This is valuation of yourself. It's not your lane. It's a freeway. Here we call them freeways, interstates, whatever. You know, it belongs to everybody. It's not your lane. I can't, this is one that's so hard to get through my thick skull, but it's, see, it's one of those habits. And I can't tell you how many times we'll be driving along and I'll say, it's in my lane. And Connie looks over and goes, would you lighten up? It's not your lane. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. And you shut up too, that, by the way. <laughs> by, by the way. Yeah, that's right. This is overvaluation of ourselves. We've all gathered long-standing accounts against others that reach far into the past and have this wonderful effect of poisoning the present. Not only do they poison the past, they poison the present. And if they're not dealt with, they poison the future because they don't allow a future. They make sure that the future is exactly like the past. That's the insurance that they have. Once we have a long-standing good account with somebody that's collecting interest, we have ensured that it's an interest-bearing account forever. We will never cut them loose because we're getting too much out of it. What are some of the things we're getting out of it? Well, we're getting out of it the joy of feeling superior. We're getting out of it the suffering that we get to rehearse constantly because of what they did, how they didn't value us properly how they didn't esteem us properly. That's what it's about. If you have an account, it's because your valuation of yourself was not lived up to by someone else. Someone else did not know what your valuation of yourself was and properly value you. 
And it would be even better if they valued you just a little more than you actually value yourself. Because what you actually value yourself at is about 10 times what you say you do. So they'd have to value you about 20 times what you say you value yourself for them to kind of start to make up for whatever it is they did to you by undervaluing you, by insulting you, by laughing you to scorn or whatever. Duh! How dumb can we be? Well, it gets better. We can be dumber. All forms of internal considering belong to identifying. We're only offended where we are identified with ourselves. If you think you are good at something, you will be offended at that. If you think you really suck at something and someone else is better, you won't be offended. But you will be offended if you're identified with yourself in this area. The study of identifying must begin here, where we are identified with ourselves. This is the only place to start studying identification, where we're identified with ourselves. This is so hard, it's even hard to say that, isn't it? Well, where am I identified with myself? Well, where are you identified with yourself? Well, I'm identified with myself everywhere. So that's where I start. Everything is false personality. Now find out what isn't. So I start with, I'm identified with myself everywhere. Now find out if there's one little thing where I'm not identified with myself. And I can't find anything, but okay. So how about if there's something where I'm a little less identified? Okay, that I've got. Now that I've got. I've got areas that I'm a little less identified than other areas. Good, start there. That's how to start. This is where we can be hurt. This is where we can be upset. This is where we can be insulted. This is where we can be offended. This has to become a red flag for us. If you feel yourself upset, hurt, offended, insulted, in any way, even the slightest way, that needs to be a red flag. You need to say, okay, I'm identified with myself here. Rather than look at the other person and how they're offending you or upsetting you or hurting you, don't bother. Don't bother. That has nothing to do with it. The red flag is for you. You look to see, where am I identifying with myself here? Where have I valued myself so suddenly now someone has the power to hurt me? Someone has the power to offend me? How did that happen? Well, how that happened is we identified with ourselves. We started thinking we were somebody. We started thinking we were important. We started thinking that we weren't where we are in the pain factory. We started thinking that this wasn't a pain factory, that all the people here are here to learn. We started thinking that it wasn't that way. We started thinking that we had already learned and all these other people are still here to learn. We started thinking that we're the teachers now. We started thinking that we're somehow above them. No, we're all bozos on this bus. We're all here on this spaceship Earth together for the same reason, to learn. And we all have uniquely different things to learn, but incredibly similar. That's the incredible thing about it. The work teaches we must study identifying down to its roots. There's a simple one, two, three formula for identification. Being identified with oneself comes first. So the first thing in the formula, the one, two, three formula is first, being identified with yourself. Being offended or upset is the second part of the formula. So if you find yourself offended or upset, you're in step two. Then when you start making inner accounts, you've reached step three. It's come to full fruition now. It's bearing fruit. So this is the poison apple. You making internal accounts, inner accounts against other people. That's the poison apple. It's born fruit. You've already gotten two steps away from the first step, which is you're identified with yourself. You've got to find out where you're identified with yourself. If you've already got a bushel, of, a bushel of apples or a couple bushels of apples or a whole barn full of apples, some people have a lot of apples, a lot of poison fruit, a lot of inner accounts. And they keep them in cold storage because we all know that revenge is a dish best served cold. So they keep it in cold storage. And they go in there and they wax and polish their apples. They got the best apples and they're going to last a long time. But just in case, they're constantly adding to them. 
They're constantly getting new harvests and bringing them into the barns too. Some people have to tear down their barns and build bigger barns, like your parents. I mean, oh my gosh, you know, those people have some accounts. It's like, wow, or your parents. Those people have some accounts. It's like, or all of our parents, I guess. Maybe that's where we got it, you think? Maybe that's where we got all this account keeping stuff. We just learned it. Because that's what the work says. It says we acquired all this nonsense. We've got to break the three-link chain at some point if we wish to be free from our bondage to my precious. If you want to stop identifying with your precious, with yourself, your precious self, then somehow you've got to find a way to get a wedge between one, two, or three. You've got to somehow break that link. You've got to stop getting to the inner accounts. The only way to stop getting to the inner accounts is to stop getting offended. The only way to stop getting offended or hurt is to stop identifying with yourself. This is what has to happen. How do we do that? How do you stop identifying with yourself? There's a Gollum living in us that seeks revenge. That's what it wants. Gollum followed Bilbo Baggins for like 76 years trying to get that ring back. 76 years. That's a long-standing account. That's what internal consideration is. Revenge. The action of inflicting hurt or harm on someone for an injury or wrong suffered at their hands or that we believe we suffered at their hands. It doesn't even have to be a real injury or harm. It could be nothing more than being laughed to scorn when they were laughing at a television show, but you heard them, but you're so whacked out with overvaluation of yourself, you're so insane with overvaluation of yourself, that you imagine that everyone is thinking about you all the time. I know it's pretty crazy, but we do it to varying degrees. Unfortunately for us, the injuries and wrongs that we suffer have their roots in our evaluation of ourselves as precious. So when we suffer an injury or wrong at someone else's hands, there is no someone else. It's our valuation of ourselves as precious that has caused the injury or wrong. Fortunately for us, we can reevaluate ourselves by placing ourselves properly in the great ray, remembering our place, remembering our nothingness, and moving from owed to grateful debtor. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty happy to be alive. Now, it's not always that way, but it's more that way now. And that's what we're doing here. We're trying to get more that way. No one's asking you to be perfect now. All I'm saying is identify with your precious self a little less today. So when you're asked to do something that you don't particularly like to do or that you don't like at all, you have a choice. You can value yourself, stand by your guns, stick to your guns. That's what they say, isn't it? Stick to your guns. Stand by your man, isn't it? Stick to your guns. That's how it goes. Stand by your man, stick to your guns. And you can be offended. Or you can be upset because someone asked you to do something you don't like. Or you can take the opportunity to disidentify with yourself, to laugh and say, sure, I'll be happy to serve. That's what I'm here for. I'm a servant. I'm thrilled to serve because I'm alive. I can serve. I can give. That's what I call moving from owed to grateful debtor. Well, I don't think I should have to do that. Well, why is that? Well, I don't like that. Well, why is that? Because I just don't like that. It's valuation, people. We're valuing ourselves. Like, what you like, is that important? Yes. And it's because we value ourselves. Because we think that we are valuable. It's got to go. This will enable us to cancel accounts and stop making new ones. If you want to cancel accounts, if you want to stop making new ones, you've got to stop identifying with yourself as precious. Often the practical application of these ideas sounds like it's going to be easy. The ideas sound great. When we actually run into a situation or a person who's being a little more difficult than we'd like, we find it's not as easy as we thought it was going to be. If you've hit a snag with some aspect of this work, 
and its practical application in your everyday life, I invite you to write James at solidrockvista.com. Sometimes a fresh perspective is all it takes to get us back on the right track.